it's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini. I can't believe you left me alone with this guy. You didn't want to come out for the bullet ant hunt, so you have to tend base camp and prep for when I bring one back. Yeah, but couldn't you have taken this guy? What's wrong with Bagithi? Well, he hasn't said a single word to me the entire time. You only think his name is Bagithi because that's all he said, and he's only said it to you. He seems to like you. He just stares at me and breathes heavily. Maybe he's just overwhelmed. What if he's like a dog or something? He's more afraid of you than you are of him. When dogs stare you down and pant heavily, they're either challenging you for dominance or psyching themselves up to attack you. Then join me on the ant hunt. But those ants would probably kill me. Then stay there. But Bagithi will probably kill me. Then just don't think about it. How can I not think about it? It's my life here. Yeah, but according to you, you die almost every week. So what's the big deal? Well, it's not like I enjoy it. It's painful. Life is pain. There's also the smell. Listen, if you're going to complain every time there's pain or a bad smell, you're going to have a rough time in this army. How would that be any different from what things have been like since the moment we started this mission? I'd have to hear about it more. Are you incapable of empathy, or do you just have a special contempt for me? Shh! I think I hear something. What kind of something? An ant something. Now be quiet. Oh, okay. And while you're being quiet and I try to flank the ant, we can get into this week's topic of discussion. How can we discuss it if I'm being quiet? I couldn't think of any other transition. Now let's just get into it. This this week, we'll be talking about episodes, what is it, like 82 through 1 million? Uh, 78 (laughs) through 82, we've got uh, episode 78, The Eternal Dragon, 79, Terror and Plague, 80, Goku vs. Sky Dragon, 81, Goku Goes to Demon Land, and 82, The Ferocious Beast, Inoshikacho. With all that said, let's start with episode 78, The Eternal Dragon. Uh, we open this episode with a recap of the fight with Pilaf, Goku, Sans Pants included. Goku returns to his friends with a Dragon Ball in tow, which means Bora can be wished back to life. Goku collects Upa, and together they fly on Kintoon back to Karin. The land, not the tower or the cat, specifically. <laughs> Goku tells his friends to wait with Baba, and he will return shortly. 
Baba makes a prediction that Goku will save the world one day. Yamcha has to become Roshi's pupil, who rejects him until Bulma enables his less-than-noble nature. And then we get a very touching musical number while Goku and Upa fly through the fantastical landscapes of Earth in the Dragon Ball universe. The boys arrive at Karin, and Goku summons Shenlong. Then the dragon appears. Upa is scared, but he manages to overcome his fear and ask the dragon to revive his father. And, of course, Shenlong's like, yeah, sure, no problem, done. Personally, I was hoping for zombie Bora, but no dice. Truly, the eternal dragon's power is limitless. There's a tearful reunion between father and son, and Shenlong says, deuces, for another year. But Goku, little scamp that he is, manages to snag the four-star ball before it flies off. Bora and Upa thank Goku for his kindness, and he returns to his friends. He informs everyone that the revival was a success, then immediately announces that he has to pee and drops trial in front of everybody. There's talk about training for the next Tenkaichi Budokai. Goku gets excited about having a new training buddy in Yamcha, but that excitement is short-lived, as Roshi dismisses Goku as a student, essentially, telling him that his final mandate is to travel the world without the use of Kinto-un. With everyone's eyes set on the next tournament, that brings us to episode 79, Terror and Plague. So we begin another training arc. This episode opens on a drought-riddled countryside, and a poor harvest has villagers facing hard times. Goku, some undetermined distance away, is running the countryside as instructed by Master Roshi, looking for new challenges to overcome. On the road, he comes across a girl who seems to be looking for a strong person to bring back to her village. Sadly, she has found a strong person, or tiger, but he wants to eat her. So she drops her lunch, which Goku promptly eats and saves the girl from the tiger. Back in town, the villagers seem to be setting up some kind of feast, but it's unknown for who at first. Or That question is quickly answered as we see some badass bikers coming in for dinner. These guys are named Ginkaku and Kinkaku, and they keep showing up at like different villages around the countryside, sort of just kind of like demanding food, and the villagers are kind of getting sick of their crap, hence the girl going out to find Goku. The girl Goku saved is named Chao, and she gives us a little backstory on the village and its recent goings-on. Uh, in town, the biker boys are complaining that their feast wasn't enough, and they need more food. The villagers are worried that giving them more food will lead to starvation. Yeah, I think I'm starting to understand the dynamics at play here. <laughs> Goku and Chao return to the village right as things start to get really hairy for the locals. Chao explains that the bikers possess a gourd that basically eats people if they don't respond to their name being called. And once you're in, you can't escape. To highlight how terrible these guys are, they start asking about the name of a newborn baby so they so that the baby can't respond and will get sucked into the gourd. And then it gets, like, dissolved into sake that they can then drink. They even comment about, like, how delicious babies make the sake, which is just super messed up. <laughs> but fortunately, Goku steps up and immediately gives his name to the bad guys. Great move there, buddy. Uh, it should be obvious to anyone at this point, Goku gets trapped in the gourd and only remembers how the gimmick works after being captured. Goku tries to bust out with a Kamehameha but the bad, uh, while the bad guys party it up. Doesn't work. But the bad guys decide to open the gourd, thinking that Goku has been dissolved and they can take a sip. Instead, Goku pops back out. There's like this call and response gag once Goku like steals the gourd from them where he uses their names numerous times in quick succession and they have to try and remember how many times he called them so they can address each time individually and then they of course inevitably mess it up and get sucked into the gourd but instead of leaving them there the villagers decide to uh, release them and use them as slave labor so everything's just peachy at the end of this episode i guess moving on to episode 80 goku versus sky dragon this one's a pretty dense storyline, so I'm just going to try and hit the high points as best I can here. Goku's basically running around in the woods training. Uh, he hears the cry of an old woman, 
and helps save her laundry from floating downriver. In return for the favor, she provides Goku with info on strong guys in the area. She points him towards somebody named Chin Taiken, who lives in the town nearby. Goku finds the town without issue and almost immediately finds himself in trouble. A lot of things happen very quickly here when Goku gets to town, and the identities aren't revealed until after those events, so I'm going to just go ahead and reveal the identities because <laughs> it's it's not a surprise. It just kind of makes it easier to understand now that I have to sort of retell these events. So there's a standoff in the town square between a father and son duo and three monks. Goku is basically in the middle of a feud between two families, the Taikens and the Longs. The standoff in town is broken up amicably by someone named Hyoga Tenlong, who's like the older brother of one of the monks who started the, the trouble in the first place. But in reality, he's just preventing a fight so that he has an opportunity to kill the father, who it turns out is Chin Taiken, tomorrow at something called the Imperial Match. So what's the deal with the Imperial Match? It's a martial arts match in front of the king and queen of this little kingdom, and the winner is promoted to martial arts instructor to the king. So now we understand the stakes, and we kind of understand why Hyoga wants to kill Chin. After the standoff, Goku learns the strong guy in the square is Chin Taiken, the guy that he's been looking for, and he immediately challenges him to a fight. The fight begins in earnest, but it ends pretty quickly as uh, Taiken seems to have some sort of illness. I guess it could be anything from, I don't know, a cold to COVID to tuberculosis, I guess. As he recuperates in bed, he and Goku talk shop comparing some of their techniques, and this is also the part of the episode where all of the context that I've already sort of filled in gets filled in. <laughs> Goku offers to go to, like, a medicine shop and pick up some medicine, but the, the chins ask him, like, you know, hey, make sure you don't cause any trouble with the lungs while you're out in town. So, of course, you know, he runs into them on the way home. They decide they want to start trouble. Goku kind of does his best to fight without actually fighting. He shows off his speed against Shao, who he inevitably tricks into, like, tripping himself off of a bridge. But then when he's faced face-to-face -face with Yoga, he, he, he wipes the floor with him pretty quickly. Despite getting his butt kicked, he manages to make it back safely to the Chin residence with the medicine. The other thing, if we kind of, like, roll back a little bit here. So, so Taiken has a son named Shoken, and throughout all this episode, we get, like, little, like, one-liners and stuff from Shoken to sort of get an idea of like what his character is basically he's full of pride and an inflated sense of his own ability the following morning after goku delivers the medicine taiken is considering dropping out of the imperial match due to his health and shoken offers to fight in his father's place to which his father just flat out rejects no that's not going to happen so then goku volunteers to fight in taiken's place citing his need to face off against yoga be because he's a strong guy and Taiken finds these terms acceptable. Shokin's pretty unhappy with sort of being brushed off by his father and decides to, when he makes breakfast for everybody, like drug Goku's <laughs> uh, miso soup with a drug that we are not told of what it is for specifically at that time. But he, he drugs uh, Goku's food in the hopes that Goku will be incapacitated, not able to fight, and he can step in for him. So our heroes head off to the castle for the match, and Shokin seems... A little too curious about Goku's bathroom habits, which kind of hints at what kind of medicine he put in there. Our fighters are then introduced for the match. Everyone learns at this point of the substitution of Taiken for Goku. Hyoga accuses Taiken of cowardice, but unfortunately, but fortunately, we have uh, a judge standing like right there to explain the rules and how this is a legal substitution. So Hyoga vows to kill Goku 
We touch gloves. Let's get it on. The match has an explosive start when suddenly uh, Goku asks for a bathroom break, but no break is given. What follows is the most painful kicks to the stomach I can imagine. Uh, Goku finishes the match with a Gensei Ken, which is Taiken Chin, or Chin Taiken's like signature move, if you will. And everyone else looks like they're about to drop a brick as well. Goku finds a bathroom. The feud is put to bed. Goku is gifted food. And he continues on his journey looking for strong opponents. End of episode 80. Moving on to episode 81. Uh, this is Goku Goes to Demon Land. The opening scene on this one's a bit darker and what we're not what we're used to with this show. We get a scene of a young girl being like haunted and then like kidnapped by some kind of poltergeist. Fortunately for said girl, Goku is currently dragging a log while walking on his hands nearby. Some old crone is is also using the same road and strikes up a conversation with Goku and he learns about the haunted castle, its village full of demon people, and the princess who was kidnapped last night. After a quick snack, Goku decides to face the village head on. In a classic miscommunication, the residents of the village think he's a demon. Once that's cleared up, Goku is treated to a royal feast in hopes that he will save the missing princess. This would require passing through the demon gate, which is extremely dangerous. But the kid says he wants to fight strong guys, so sure, why not? Let him do it. Put the kid on the front line. And then the next morning, the king brings Goku to the demon gate. We learn that Shura, the demon world's best martial artist, has wedged the door open with a sword that will not come free until he's defeated in battle. Goku obviously takes this as a personal challenge and runs off to face Shura. Goku is ambushed by Mela and Gora, two guards to the demon world. Goku tries to pass peacefully, but bureaucratic red tape forces the demons to act. Goku manages to hold them off, displaying great strength, but only seems to, that only seems to pique the demon's interest. Uh, they discover Goku's looking for Shura, and we learn that Misa, who is the princess, uh, was not only kidnapped, but forced, is being forced to marry her captor. Ew. Mela offers to take Goku directly to Shura. We get Toriyama's interpretation of a demon's wedding, which features a fighting tournament, I guess. Goku volunteers his tribute and mops the floor with a couple jobbers. Goku calls out Shura directly with a challenge. Shura accepts by kicking the kid in the face. Battle is fierce and Shura seems confident of victory, but a well-timed throwing knife and a Kamehameha wave later, and Goku's the winner. Or at least a long enough distraction for him to grab the princess and start running out. Misa gets returned home. Goku pulls out Shura's sword, uh, permanently closing the demon gate, and everyone lives happily ever after in hell. That brings us to our last episode for this for this week, which is episode 82, The Ferocious Beast, Inoshikacho. A lot of recap at the start of this one, but it's worth it as the opening animation is higher quality than usual, and I think it actually continues throughout the whole episode, if I remember correctly. Yeah, this episode looks great. We get a nice action shot of Goku stopping a runaway tractor, which feels like it belongs in an episode of Beverly Hillbillies, if I'm being <laughs> honest. So why were they driving through the mountains with everything they own? The Inoshikacho, of course, a terrible beast that chased them from their home. Goku decides it's the perfect time for another match. Back at Kame House, the boys are still training, and Roshi's flipping through old memories. Here we learn the Inoshikacho is actually the pet of the Crane Hermit. Back in the mountains, Goku's hot on the trail of the Inoshikacho. Also pursuing the beasts are villagers and two students of the Crane School, who presumably study under the Crane Hermit. Uh, as Goku catches up to them, he's just in time to see the students take down the beast with a couple of well-placed kicks. Turns out these guys were hired to take down the beast by the village. They get their payment, they get some food, they grab the pig, and they head out of town. They set up camp and are soon harassed by Goku, who is also looking for food. As he approaches, we see that Inoshikacho isn't dead, and it appears that these guys are running some kind of racket. Angered by being discovered, they lash out at Goku, trying to kill him. When they don't immediately succeed, they want to know more about him. 
But ultimately, the fight ends with Goku pinned under a tree and being left for dead. Goku's been rescued by a girl named Tanmen, who confirms that the Crane students are tricking villagers out of their money to deal with the Inoshikacho. Goku tracks them down and blows up their spot by tickling the pig. The town realizes they've been duped and the jig is up. Trying to save face, Three Eyes throws a burning log underneath the beast as proof that he is no friend to the creature, which causes it to get a severe burn on its back. This wanton cruelty upsets Goku, who saves the beast and immediately places suspicion on himself. The Inoshikacho creates confusion and our villains use the disarray to beat a hasty retreat. Goku saves the beast and makes the ton men to be looked after. Uh, there's a villager ambush on the way, but the girl and her father show up and set everything straight. The beast is tended to, and Goku finds a clue as, as to where the Crane students are headed, which is Papaya Island and the Tenkaichi Tournament. And there we end episode 82. Yeah, pretty fun for filler, some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I enjoyed I, – I did enjoy these little one-offs. These were these were really nice. We uh, With the um, – the Sky Dragon one, I think we got a nice little con- constrained, like, one-episode story that I thought was pretty satisfying. And then just for the Inoshikacho episode, the combination of getting introduced to the Crane students and just the overall quality of the animation being a little bit higher than what we've seen these last few episodes was a really nice combination. Yeah, it bears it bears restating that they're filler, and so this, you know, is not intended to be our first interaction by Toriyama with uh with Tian Shinhan and um Chaozu, right? You know, the mo- the the anime staff had the benefit of being able to look ahead at least somewhat and see that these two characters are about to be antagonistic and so decided to put them in. I have a couple of notes on some of the pilaf stuff that I forgot to put into our bigger notes. <laughs> so, okay. So when uh when Baba is doing her little incantations and she's like going like ah, like to to use her seer stone or whatever to see where the Dragon Ball is, this is likely adapted from old folkloric songs that are sung during the Oban festival. It's kind of like the equivalent of saying like "eeny meeny miny mo," which I hope doesn't get us canceled since that's now like. We've learned in more recent years that that's like basically like a racial motivated yeah. rhyme. I, I never knew that as a child, but um, but it's the the point being really, it's a bunch of words that are ubiquitous but have like lost their actual meaning over time. Mm-hmm. And so Toriyama's just kind of twisting these words to his purposes. It might be something like you ever see that one Bugs Bunny episode where he becomes Super Bunny and. He's got the the two the two antagonists of the episode going brick a brack a fire crack a zis boom ba bugs bunny bugs bunny ra 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 oh yeah yeah it's like that so to, to, so we can get us away from the from the the racially motivated stuff although we're gonna find out that that's probably a racial epithet or something too <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was the forties right so but no um it's it's just it's like it's nonsense words but that are like kind of ubiquitous is is mm-hmm. the point here. Torishima 
says the part where Goku gets his pants burned off has always been a favorite of his as it shows that Goku is being he he goes into like a really long thing it's it's wild he's talks about Goku being reborn through this experience that he's just undergone with his grandpa and baba and all the stuff that he went through with the red ribbon army he is now being born again he is he's being rebirthed and after his birth he's just going to keep getting stronger and stronger just like he did after his birth in real life every time he like gets his clothes torn off he's being born and being reborn and and gets stronger right that's that's like Torshima's take on it is like every time you see Goku's outfit get annihilated he gets stronger it's kind of an interesting take i never thought of that before but i mean i guess it, it follows the themes especially when you think about like the tau pai pai fight where his duds basically get wrecked yeah and but it is also a point of great growth for him right and when he turns into uzaru at uh his grandfather er, at the tenkaichi budokai when he uh when he f- turns into uzaru against pilaf like <laughs> Every yeah. time his clothes get ripped off, he's born again in a new strength. <laughs> but Torishima goes on to lament that abroad, uh, when it when it was initially shown, the scene was shown edited. It was shown with Goku wearing boxer shorts underneath, <laughs> underneath, and he he then like because this 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 interview is from I think before these like uncensored episodes kind of aired. But he encourages people who have only ever seen the edited version to try and find it. Because he also notes that he's seen the scene in front of a great many audiences and with a great many audiences. And it's always, he says, it's always kids who just find it funny and think it's silly. And only ever the adults who are offended by it. Which is pretty true for what we've said for like all of the possible censorship in Dragon Ball. Yeah. Basically. Or at least most of. And then the last little note I have is that the peel-off machine merging into one is from either Power Rangers or Voltron. It's kind of like a pick-your-poison type of thing. I mean, it fits in I with figured. both of them pretty well. Yeah. So getting into the episodes themselves, uh, Terror and Plague. In Japanese, Terror is Kinkaku, and Plague is Jinkaku. And in Journey to the West, Sun Wukong fights two demons named Kinkaku and Jinkaku, who capture Tanzanzang, or Xuanzang, in a crimson gourd, which was designed to dissolve him in order to drink his essence and grant them immortality. Eh? Oh. See? I was not expecting this. Interestingly... The English dub plays even more on that idea by stating that the gourd allows the bandits to absorb a man's strength. However, in the original Japanese, it's simply sake that they're drinking. It was changed in the dub to avoid referencing alcohol. Oh, well, that's an interesting use of censorship going the opposite way and making the story better. Right, right. It's wild that they, they just changed it to not be referencing sake and then... Meanwhile, they happened to accidentally make it more like the thing that it was originally borrowing from. <laughs> Kinkaku also wielded the Seven Star Sword. Seven Star, pretty sure that's just a wild coincidence, but the sword in Journey to the West is said to be as powerful as Sun Wukong's staff. And when Goku and Kinkaku are fighting in this, he, the, the, 
staff does not break the sword like it usually does when Goku fights people with swords. That is true. Sun Wukong and Zhu Baji manage to steal these weapons away from King Kaku and Jin Kaku and trap them in the gourd to be dissolved. So you can see how we're like twisting that a little bit to not make it quite as dark. <laughs> Just a little. But so while that's sort of some of the cultural inspiration here, the structure of this episode has reminded me a lot of Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, or if you have not seen either one of those classics, A Bug's Life. Ooh, good pull. Or season one, episode four of The Mandalorian, where the bandits are terrorizing the small village and they get in yes. the ATST. The, the in all four of these things, there's bandits that are terrorizing a small village and like taking more than the little people can can afford to give out. And so they reach out to a strong warrior, or in those stories, like a group of warriors for help in repelling the evildoers. Seven Samurai is the earliest example of a movie I can think of with this story. And it was based on research Kurosawa had done about samurai while wanting to make a film about a day in the life of a samurai. He stumbled across stories of samurai protecting farmers and became inspired and infatuated with the idea. I love that movie. That is a great movie. It's a classic. And it, I feel this is one of those things where I feel like people should watch it. One, yes, because it's a good movie, but also so you can be pretentious at parties afterwards and be like, oh, yes, I've seen Seven Samurai. <laughs> but you can also see just how many movies you like are basically Seven Samurai. Yep. <laughs> like, because <laughs> there's also, like, isn't The Three Amigos basically like a, a the, sort the of a like parody is, version is, of this? Is, yeah, it's a parody version of it, essentially. Yeah. And that's like, there's so many movies and stories that our guy getting picked on reaches out to group and of. I'm noble glad you picked warriors. a Bug's Life because that's my favorite one to reference. <laughs> when people are like, you know, what's what's a what's a weird like movie that was inspired by another movie, and I'm like, a Bug's Life inspired by Seven Samurai. Yeah, it is. It is very much so. It is a great, great movie. It, the the one issue is it's like three and a half hours long. <laughs> worth it. But yeah, it's it's worth it. Now in the Japanese version, the path of trees that 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 Goku flies down that leads to the village is called the Road of Dreams. In researching, I just tried to research if this had any significance to Japanese culture, but it was difficult as Road of Dreams is the title of an Agatha Christie book. <laughs> so Oof. every yeah, time I was difficult, I was looking into it. It was like, would you like to read the Japanese version of Agatha Christie's road of dreams? And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> but there is some cultural heritage and history with something called the bridge of dreams, which is actually the title of a chapter in the tale of Genji, which is considered by some to be the world's first novel, and it's certainly Japan's earliest novel, and is also used throughout Japanese poetry, this bridge of dreams, the concept of a bridge of dreams, as a metaphor for the fleeting nature and mortality of human life. Yeah, for this episode specifically, I'll take any episode that's self-contained. This is an episode of Dragon Ball that you could go back and just watch, and have like a nice bite-sized little chunk of Dragon Ball fun mm-hmm. that's self-contained. And then also is like, this is Dragon Ball doing Seven Samurai. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a that's a 
That's a solid comparison there. I like, like that. if this were if this were the remember in the nineties when they would release like three or four episodes on VHS and call it like like a mini little story arc. Mm-hmm. I would make sh- I'd put like this episode just on a VHS and be like, this is this is Dragon Ball. This is a Dragon Ball. Yeah, this is like <laughs> one that you can watch just kind of by itself and then also over and over. Agreed. Our next episode is Goku versus Sky Dragon. Sky Dragon makes a brief cameo in BoJack Unbound, but only in the English dub. Japanese version has a different character entirely. Perhaps whomever was in charge of the English version was a big fan of this episode, I guess. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that, that would be a nice little Easter egg. A character that looks similar also appears in a filler bit from the Android Saga and DBZ. Yeah, they're in like the, um, shoot. They're, they're called like the something motorcycle gang that I think Cell beats the crap out of. Okay. In some series synergy, the voice actor of Sky Dragon in both the Japanese language and Funimation dub also voice Ice Shenron, the dragon of the three-star Dragon Ball from the Black Star Dragon Ball Saga of GT. Sky Dragon is dressed similar to the Bear Bandit from the earlier ep- uh, chapters of Dragon Ball, as well as the Tiger Bandit from the episode prior to this. Uh, is there some world building intended here among the anime staff that a loosely connected roving gang of similar bandits or something? Or is it just borrowing already existing stuff for filler characters? Shoken, who's, uh, as I said, was the, the son in this episode, uh, is based on Tong Pu and Tanton from Tong Pu's Adventure and Dragon Boy. Yeah, he looks remarkably like them, if you've ever looked he, up. He almost looks like like a beta version of Goku, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and that's that's what Tong Pu and Tong Tong were, right? They were yeah. They were sort of those, uh, re- not recycled, but uh, the, those one-offs. I forget what those are called uh, every time. They're called, like, something manga, like, pleh manga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's basically, like, the one-offs. Uh, the one-shots, and yeah, the, those two characters are from some one-shots that he did while trying to come up with the idea for Dragon Ball. If you want to hear more about those, go back and listen to that episode we did. I think it was called, like, did we call it Dragon Ball Prototypes, I think, maybe? I think it was something like that, yeah. <clears throat> and we went into, like, all the little kooky similarities with Dragon Boy, how there's Dragon Balls in it, but little useless dragons pop out of them. <laughs> Fantastic. This this episode, I couldn't find like any specific. Oh, this is based off of this, but no, but it smacks of like those seventies like kung fu flicks that we know that Toriyama's a fan of. Yeah, exactly. The one that springs to mind, even though it's way sillier than this, because this is actually a very serious episode. But Enter the Fist with the the Crane School and the. I don't. I don't mean the. I don't mean Enter the Fist like that movie. I mean the one that it's based off. It's like Tiger versus Crane Schools or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're. you're yeah, but but yeah, it definitely smacks of like that era of like kung fu yeah. cinema. It's funny because I didn't even think of that. Like, I know I can't remember the name of that movie that 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 it takes a lot of its because it takes from like three movies, doesn't it? Uh, I think Pao. it does. Yeah. What a what a great. It's called Tiger and Crane Fists. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, I didn't think of that one. I thought of just because I was like kind of thinking down these lines. Ultimately, is Fist of Fury. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Lee, and it's that's like pretty similar. I mean, there's there's some kind of big differences. Like 
in Fist of Fury, it's more the movie's more about like Japanese colonialism and it's like the Chinese dojo is fighting with the Japanese dojo over who gets to be is this is this the one that's who gets to oh no, this is different. But it's like just who's superior. Fist of Fury, I think this is the one though that has some like decent comedic beats with bruce lee in it like like dressing in disguises and things like that it's 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 right. got some of that good stuff in it and then also it's got some great action sequences the other movie it reminded me of was akira kurosawa's first movie this is again now we're gonna get two kurosawa references in a single episode here but it's almost um, like it's almost like the 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 company that did the anime was like okay so we got a couple filler episodes what do we do i don't know do we just do our own versions of kurosawa films (laughs) in 20 minutes instead of three hours (laughs) but just a little bit it reminded me of his first movie shansiro sugata which is about a talented young man who wants to become a jujitsu master and he studies at a martial artist school and he eventually becomes a very talented jujitsu fighter and then he fights in a match against like another dojo at the end to see which of these dojos is going to train the local police officers in their fighting style oh interesting and so that kind of lined up with the whole idea of Martial Our two masters are going to fight to see yeah, yeah. who gets to be the, the royal uh, dojo or whatever, right? Shinsiro Sugata, though, had like 18 minutes of footage cut out of it when it was released because it was released right at the beginning of World War II and Japanese censors took out like anything that felt too, quote unquote, too British American. Okay, well, I guess and that's fair. That's a lot of that footage has never been recovered, and so Criterion, when they put the movie out, they put out like all of Kurosawa's stuff. It opens with with a title card that says like this film has been not modified from the debut without consulting the director, which I mean he was dead, so obviously. <laughs> 1,800 feet of footage was cut in 1944 to comply with the government's wartime entertainment policies. So oof. Hopefully somebody saved that so we can <clears throat> it's just lost. have a record of it. It's just oh, Finn, lovely. That's that's what happened to everything back then. It got they didn't people didn't know how fragile film was, you know, and that's it got lost. And and a lot of it too. A lot of Japanese movies from that era got lost during the fire bombings. Ah, I see. When when Americans would just literally try to burn Tokyo to the ground. <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> That's like I'm reminded too. Then, if like whenever I start talking about that, of how uh, Subaraya Productions, which creates created all the Ultraman shows, like wound up with because that was that was the one bad thing about no digitization existing. Because I'm a big I'm a big proponent of like film prints and stuff like that. I think it all looks really cool, and I lament that movie theaters don't show film prints anymore. This but, is a complete surprise to me. I never knew. <laughs> but they got Super I got so loaded up with you know canister after canister of film that they were storing 
like original negatives for original opening sequences to shows and like things that they didn't use. They were like storing it in their bathrooms. Oh. Because <laughs> they, like, they, they ran out of storage space and some and someone would be like, find a place for this box of stuff, and they'd like throw it in that bathroom that nobody ever uses. <laughs> that is um excellent organizational skills. Yeah. So, uh, moving on to Goku Goes to Demon Land. I I was just curious, King Cress and Queen Cress, is that like Water Cress? Are we keeping with the food puns here? I can't believe I missed that, honestly. I was I was very unsure. I couldn't find anything. But Shula, his name is derived from Shura, the Japanese term referring to Buddhist demigods known as Asura, which were creatures who were said to have three faces and four or six arms and were basically like the titans of old Greek mythology. They're wrathful, prideful, envious creatures who are antagonistic and always trying to attain more, never really satisfied with when they get more. Uh, they're they're very greedy that in that way. Their realm is one of the realms in which a person can be reincarnated if he or she experiences the benefits of good karma during their life while participating in activities that induce or should lead to bad karma. Uh, so so then Shula, his, his appearance is similar to the god Shiva, and the trident that's on his forehead really bears that home as the trident is the weapon of Shiva. Uh, we'll probably talk more about Shiva I think like years and years from now maybe when we get to Beerus as Shiva is the destroyer right but also has mm-hmm. this contrary nature in that he's a benefactor as well sounds a lot like Lord Beerus for another movie to add to our ever increasing pile of references that we can maybe perhaps possibly one day eventually maybe kind of review <laughs> Shula's design is taken almost directly from the 1983 Hong Kong wuxia film, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, specifically the blood devil in that movie. If you Google it, if you Google Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain and go to images, you'll see the design. It's like dead on. And then... Melee looks pretty similar to the Ice Queen from that aforementioned film. And she is, I think, a Shinigami, or a Japanese god of death, which, if you're familiar with Death Note, you might be familiar with the concept of Shinigami. If not, watch the two live-action, the first two live-action Death Note movies directed by Shuzuke Kaneko. They're awesome. Actually, yes, I'll agree with this. Not the not the Netflix version though. Not no, the Netflix not, version. Not the Netflix version. Netflix not version uh, terrible. Not what is the third? The third one was called like L Change the World or something, and it's like an interquel between the end of. It's like takes place between like the three quarters of the way mark through the second movie and the end of the second movie. <laughs> like, but yeah, don't not that. Just Death Note and Death Note Two, directed by Shizuke Kaneko. Those movies are awesome. I actually watched them recently. Or or even the series or the manga, honestly. They're 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 both really good. I've heard the anime's pretty good. I have never checked it out. The anime's really good because it sticks pretty closely to the manga, which was also really good. Okay. I might check out the manga maybe. It gets it gets a little crazy with, with the planning in some spots. But you kinda just have to sort of just suspend your disbelief and go with it. I mean that's 
That's the movies too, right? When they're like, yeah. And that's the I thing is like you got you've got literal like beings of death running around. Like you kind of have to <laughs> suspend your disbelief. I watched those two movies within the past, I'll say, month and a half. And oh, that's way more recent than I did. I could not at all tell you the ultimate plan and how it shakes out with the whole burying the death note and all of that stuff. Oh, well then definitely if you get the chance, read the manga because you'll, I have a feeling you'll enjoy the zaniness. (laughs) But yes, the death note rules is the, is the, the takeaway, but not the American adaptation. Shocker. This is usually the case with this stuff. Gola looks like a standard demon, uh, just like you'd see like one of the Hiffle workers or even like uh, King Yemma. He just kind of looks like a standard demon with his little, little pointy hat. We might kind of reference this episode more in the future when we get to the movie Sleeping Princess and Devil's Castle, because I feel like there's like some similarities there. At, at least with, that. like, demons and having, like, an impromptu, like, tournament where then Goku challenges, like, the strongest person. I mean, those are, like, kind of beat-for-beat story similarities. What the goal of each of these things is is a little bit different, but, like, there's there's some some pretty striking sort of plot similarities between the two. Yeah. Moving on to the next episode, The Rampage of Inoshikacho. Uh, Inoshikacho is a boar or Eno, a deer, Shika, and a butterfly, Cho, and is a combination from the game Koi Koi, which is played with a style of Japanese playing cards known as Hanafuda. Uh, these cards are used in Hawaii to play Sakura, and Koi Koi is a game where the object is to form special card combinations. Uh, the ubiquitous nature of this game influences even uh, other anime like Naruto, where there's a character named Yamanaka Ino. There's another one named Akamichi Choji. And then there's Nara Shikamaru, who form like Team 10. And they are, uh, when they attack opponents, they call their formation Ino Shikacho, a direct influence of Dragon Ball on something else for a change. <laughs> yeah, I, that was really all I could find on this. I, the, nothing about this really specifically sung to me as like any specific kind of thing interestingly with the uptick in the quality of the animation and the i want to say like personification of inashika cho where he's given like you know some he's vaguely anthropomorphized you know he's given like some emotion and sort of ability to to communicate Mm -hmm. i was reminded just in general a little bit of like disney i could kind of see that yeah Especially with those uh, uh, early on in the episode with the wide shots of yeah. like the mountains and then like stuff going on in the background, but your characters in the foreground sort of like watching what's happening going on. And especially um, like Inashika Cho's like design. Yeah, it's 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 definitely more on like the almost goofy side. Yeah, and how he and as how opposed he, to being like genuinely terrorizing. Right, and how he behaves like 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 i said like vaguely anthropomorphized he feels like he'd be right at home in like a disney thing where i don't know like someone would have him as their pet and he would like he, nod he, to them. he strikes me as like the um 
like the animal familiar of the villain that does a heel turn in the third act to help yeah, the heroes. Okay. okay. I, I can't I, think of I can't think of one specifically at the moment, but that's not the trope that, I'm thinking of. Not that like turns towards the hero's side, you know, or anything. No, but, but like, just like does some small thing to like help the hero defeat the villain. Right, right. But you know, just for the animal sidekick to the villain is like you know, like your uh, your Iago's or uh, Flotsam and Jetsam from um, yes, from Little Mermaid, Mer- Little Mermaid, or. Even even the hyenas from Lion King. Okay, yeah, that's cool. a little bit of a stretch, but I'll go with that one. Well, they ultimately like they're working with Scar, and then they turn on him. Yeah, but they're they're like they have more agency I, unto themselves. Yeah, I was gonna I say they're agree. they're a little bit more uh, sapient, I guess. Yeah, but no, yeah, I, that's a good that's a good comparison point. I didn't think of that. I like it. <laughs> Yay, I do some things right on this show. <laughs> but yeah, not intended to be Tien and Chaozu's introduction to us. You know, this was just the anime staff kind of having some fun with it. I'll be very curious again. It's been it's been so so long since I have watched through Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z. I, I forgot how much of a bastard Tien is in the beginning. And I'm going to be super curious too to watch and see do they reference this at all when Goku and Tien meet each other? I don't believe they do, no. So it's just sort of like hand-waved away, much like lunch. <laughs> but that, that to me is like the overall theme of these episodes. It's the anime staff sort of flexing muscles that they don't normally get to use. Um, and just like some of the, the, the previous filler episodes that we've talked about, I think they did a fantastic job with these. I do too. I think... When we talk about like filler, there's good filler and bad filler, and these this are is good the, filler. This is the good filler. I, I think it's kind of interesting that it seems like the more filler an episode is, the like the more the more that an episode is not based on any part of the manga, the less time is wasted on like recaps and drawing things out, and the more time is just spent trying to tell a single story. Ah, jeez, I wonder why that is. <laughs> and do it in 22 minutes. And when you're like, it's it's kind of funny because this happens more here and then in the early parts of Z and then you get later and they do filler and it's entire arcs and I think maybe those are not quite as good. But mm-hmm. like when you get to just these little one-shot filler episodes it's like all right guys pitch me a story and they end up probably pitching a story that would normally take them even 40 minutes to tell and they're like you've got 20 yeah get it get the story down to the absolute bare minimum so that we know we can fit it in this episode and so then it ends up being really fun yeah and it it, i mean because you're you're picking up the pacing like you said there's no time wasted on recaps the obviously the animation studio gets to maybe you know throw a little bit more of the budget into it i wonder if that's because they like because they're coming up with something just completely original they have to they can't rely on old animation they've done and that was something i was going to bring up is is when you look at the story in all of these filler episodes the Inoshika Cho episode's probably the thinnest on story. And so they probably decided, well, let's bump up the budget 
on the animation, so it at least looks pretty. <laughs> and yeah, these these like these fully filler episodes are just they're more enjoyable than when you feel the show go. Oh no, hang on, p- pump the brakes a little bit and make these two panels into three episodes. Yeah, definitely. Because now you're not just having two characters stare each other down for the whole time. You're you're just you're moving a plot. And forward we we either. saw that even a little bit in in uh, the most recent Pilaf episode where they talk about fighting for like five minutes before they actually fight. Yeah, and that becomes a trope that is almost abused to the point of non-belief later on in the, <laughs> in the series. So yeah, that that does it for these episodes and then as we do we'll we'll cap off all this baba stuff with just a brief discussion of the manga and frankly I don't have much. Usually we are t- we talk about like all the differences and all the little things and I really did not find very much this time. So just going through a few of the things I picked out, in chapter 97, Bulma has a line where she says, we're so busy, we'd even ask for help from a pig. And Oolong says, it's supposed to be a cat. And that's like a Japanese euphemism, I guess, or or saying or whatever, that's basically lost like... lost in translation. It, it's more or less lost in translation, but we've, we've kind of talked about this before, how cats are seen as like... Uh, notoriously lazy and mystical in Japan and how they are known to like wander off into the woods to work on their mystical magical cat powers (laughs) and so if you're like if you're so busy you'd ask for help from a cat you you're you're so overloaded that you would ask for help from someone that you know wouldn't even give it anyways (laughs) that's pretty busy in chapter 98, Goku calls Baba the ball-seeing crone instead of the all-seeing crone. <laughs> and I thought that was a fun... Like, that's a good way to Americanize the Uranai versus Uranai thing that we talked about. Yeah. Which they've done a few times, I feel. We've, we've talked about a few times they've done, like... The pun is a mis- mispronunciation or whatever, but it doesn't translate at all. But I think I thought this was a good one. In chapter ninety nine, when Upa becomes the cross, I thought it visually worked better in the anime because, like, they overlay the cross image onto it. Okay, but I think the joke is funnier in the manga because. Okay. He's just standing there with his arms outstretched, and Dracula is like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm a cross, the enemy of all vampires. And then he goes, oh, no! (laughs) You're right, that does work better. And I think that's funnier, like, it has no effect until he's told, I'm a cross. (laughs) In chapter 101, Baba says something to Roshi where she's like, Oh, you still having those quote unquote nosebleeds, which you might just gloss over as a reader and be like, ah, nosebleeds, because eh, Roshi gets nosebleeds. But we've talked about what those nosebleeds mean. Um, so that's a boner joke for you, basically. So we had we had we had scrotal discussion in our last episode, and and now boner discussion, elder <laughs> boner discussion, by the way. <laughs> 
chapter 103 this this was one of the bigger differences i had goku takes out mummy kun with a single punch as opposed to him like getting wrapped up in his bandages and falling down towards the devil's toilet and good old play for time punch. he takes him out with a single punch which think about what that means about the strength of general tau even like after goku has trained he trades punches with Goku a little bit. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Also, um, also makes my boy Yamcha look like even more of a joke. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. In Chapter 104, Devil Man only uses the evil expansion wave once. He does not try again. I, I do like the gag of using it a second time in the anime, though. I, I do, too. I, I especially like how... I don't know, because you're watching him subtitled. I don't know what the translation said... But in the English, like, dub, Goku says, oh, can you try a different color next time? Maybe purple? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. No, there's no joke like that. In chapter 112, Krillin remarks that Goku will never have to go on another quest for the Dragon Balls ever again. Which, (laughs) (laughs) ha (laughs) ha ha ha. Well, now we know why Krillin doesn't have the crystal ball. And then I've got a couple of quick cover art notes. First of all, remember when I was talking about way back when we did Muscle Tower Mm -hmm. and I mentioned like the one episode that's got like the what looked like games all over it? Yeah. Most of what I think I said in that episode wound up being accurate. It's like a small crossword puzzle. The two pictures that looked like they were the same are a spot the differences thing. Okay. And then there was like a couple of other word puzzles. It's like all like supposed to be games or something. And there was really no other purpose to it, actually. But then chapter 107 on the cover has a congratulations banner, which is meant to commemorate the two year anniversary of Dragon Ball, which is made even more explicit in the chapter 108 cover, which has text reading Dragon Ball two year serialization anniversary commemoration present. And it details a contest where readers had to send in postcards to Shonen Jump. And in return, five lucky winners would receive telephone calling cards. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, like, like preloaded with minutes? Yeah. Oh dang. The telephone calling cards autographed by Akira Toriyama. <laughs> what, a, what a bizarre giveaway, right? That's oh, even I mean even okay. in the era of calling cards being more common. If yeah, you were like that's still really weird. Giving away autographed calling cards. It's like um, here's here's some long distance minutes. Call your grandmother. She misses you. <laughs> Now, Toriyama autographs, though, are actually pretty rare, and none of these cards has ever surfaced. Interesting. Also interesting is that the actual two-year anniversary of Dragon Ball is Chapter 102, and there's never been any solid evidence brought forward to explain this delay. However, in some notes in the VizBig on Volume 10... 
Toriyama talks a lot about how his son is growing up and getting older and there's getting to be a little bit of friction because he's spreading himself really thin doing one shots for Shonen Jump and Dragon Ball and Dragon Quest and feeling like he's not seeing his son as much as he would like and Mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out how to strike that balance more and so my theory and based on all the evidence leading up to this, is that Toriyama missed a deadline. Probably. Told, hey, come and think like think up of a of a little contest that people can do for the two year anniversary, or do a cover that's like happy two year anniversary. And he was like, uh, 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 and didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he had like a an old piece of cover art sitting around for chapters like 102, 103, 104, and just slapped it on there. And eventually Torishima or someone had to be like, dude, we need that two year anniversary thing. Like now. Cause we're, we're a month and a half past it already. <laughs> uh, so I, I just had a quick thought about the phone card thing. Was it ever confirmed that phone cards were sent out? I don't know. So my thought there is that, like, they put the contest out there and just, like, never followed through on it. (laughs) That would be awesome, too. It'd be awesome if uh, this gets a little bit morbid. Sorry. But when Toriyama eventually does pass, they're, like, going through his stuff and they they find a drawer filled with, like, autographed (laughs) phone cards. cards. Uh, we'll be we'll be part of I'm like a dozen people now that will laugh if that's the case. <laughs> that was that's that's just so funny. Like I, you know, calling cards for you uh, Gen Zers out there were back in the day when phones. We talked about this when we talked about fax machines. <laughs> phones used to be connected to the walls. You didn't have one in your pocket. You got charged long distance if you called like out of your area code. And so calling cards were like a way for you to be able to make a phone call while you were traveling. That's what they were mostly used for, I feel, in the States, at least. I'm going to visit friends who live out of state. I'm going to get some calling cards so that I can call home and check how things are going at home. Yeah, so you could be somewhere like at a relative's house and you could make calls, but they wouldn't be charged for them. Right. Because long-distance calls were expensive. (laughs) I can't believe we're explaining this right now. (laughs) That's wild. Think about that. Think about... It's not... It's within within our memory, which we're not... We're we're like grumpy old pieces of poo, but we're not like that old. (laughs) It's within our memory that when you dialed a different... A different area code in front of your phone number you got charged a a lot of additional money to make that call yeah yeah or you remember calling collect yes <laughs> do you remember do you remember we out a baby eats a boy yes <laughs> it's one of the greatest commercials of all time this is mike we out a baby eats a boy it's a boy <laughs> who was that oh it was mike they had a baby boy (laughs) but so that's all these filler episodes it's good stuff like for just entertainment purposes 
these past like 10 episodes of the show have been good. Yeah. They've been really good. And I I agree with your assessment earlier. Like you I think you could put all 3 of these episodes on like a VHS tape and that would be a decent collection of like weird little yeah, Dragon Ball. And you wouldn't feel like you're missing anything if you got these. Yeah, it's not tied to anything else, so you don't have to worry about like what the storyline in the in the the you know what the main storyline is or anything like that. It's just here's some fun little side adventures that don't mean anything in the big scheme of things and are just a lot of fun. Yeah, good stuff. Well, speaking of telephones, I think I hear something. Is it the incessant sounds of your complaints about every single mission we undertake? No. Maybe it's Begithi getting angry with your constant complaining. Hey, shut up. Begithi is... He's... I don't know what he's... Oh my god! What? What is it? No. Get away from me. Back off. Back off. What? Is it an ant? Is it Begithi? Is it something else? Ah! Hang on, Begithi, I'm coming! Oh no. Not this. Listeners will take our leave of you here. Is Bikini being attacked by a giant bullet ant? Is Begithi finally tired of Bikini's childish complaining and taking him out? Will I have a cool new co-host next episode? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 